But as we go forward here in the book of Acts, I was trying to think of how to get this started. And I was thinking to myself, you know, we're going to talk about this aspect of the gospel. And though in Peter's speech, he's going to talk about a lot of other things as well. But he's going to kind of, I don't know, emphasize this certain part of it. At least I'm going to certainly emphasize it. And I was trying to think about how to explain it. And I think I explain it like this. You know, the gospel is very simple in the sense that if someone were to say, I want you to summarize the gospel, but hey, I don't got a lot of time. You know, give me like one sentence. Can you just do it one sentence? You know, I got to go. Good news, yeah, or you might say, you got to have faith, right? You got to have faith, you got to believe, or something like that. You might say, you know, how do I get saved? You got to believe. The good, the, but then you might say, well, you got to believe in Jesus. You know, you got to believe in the good news of Jesus. So, you know, however you want to say it, it might get longer and longer, and of course, it gets more in depth and more in depth, but it's kind of like this. It's kind of like, like this. You say, how do you play the game of soccer? Well, you just try to get the ball in the other net. Then you put a little kid out there, and what does the little kid do? They pick it up, and you go, oh, well, yeah, yeah, I mean... Yeah, you, you try to get the ball in the net, but you can't pick it up. And then it goes out of bounds, and then you, what do you do? You go, oh, 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 but now you need to pick it up, right? And suddenly the very simple game of soccer has layers and layers and layers. And actually one of the beautiful things of the gospel, I think, is though it's so simple, in a sense, there's kind of layers and layers. We learn more and more and more and more depth of the beauty of the gospel. And so many things are like this. And so as we go through what Peter's speech that he's going to give after he does this wonderful healing, we're going to really come at it in two parts. So verses, we're going to be in Acts chapter 3, and verses, the beginning verses will start in verse 11. It's kind of a defense of what was done, starting with a history. He connects that history to Christ. Then as we get to verse 19 through 26 in the other chapter, he focuses more on repentance, this time of refreshing and those who fail to respond to this message is their responsibility or culpability before God. So it says here in verse 11, while he, this was the man that was healed, we talked about him last week, while he, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So the three of these men are together. Everyone else looking around is astounded because this man's healed. It seems like some time has passed. We're not actually sure how much time has passed. But everyone's amazed, and they're in this portico. Now, if you want to know where this is, I'm going to put up my likely too small map here, and I will try to show you which part of it is. The part that we're talking about here, Solomon's or Solomon's porch, would be like this area right here. So they're on the east side. This is north in this picture, you know, the Antonio's Fortress, the north side. So Solomon's porch is right here. They're probably standing up against that wall. Remember, the gate that he was sitting at, we healed at, we thought he was right here. So they've come in, they've come out. So it does seem like here that some time has passed. And since some time has passed, people have realized this man has been healed and they're amazed. So we go to verse 12, and it says, And Peter saw it, had a, he saw it, he addressed the people. They're gathering around. They're amazed. They're seeing it. He has this chance. You ever do something really cool? This probably doesn't happen to too many of us too often, but you do something really neat. Like maybe you do a magic trick, and suddenly you got everybody, right? They're all looking at you like, oh, what's going on, right? You suddenly got their attention. And this is sort of what's happening here. 
He has all their attention. He begins this speech. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And when he says this, he probably is referring to the man or at least the miracle that happened to this man. Why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. Why are you looking at us and it may, you make it seem like we have some power or we have some piety? Piety meaning like good character, like it's something that has to do with our intrinsic goodness. Why do you think it has anything to us? So, he, so he's kind of separating himself, and there might have been some groups people would have put them in. There were some Hellenistic wonder workers. There were some Jewish charismatics is what we call them, and he would have been separating himself from them. But he says, no, 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 no. I'm not them. And then he starts out and says, the God of Abraham. And this is incredibly important. So I, I showed you the temple, right? This is where they were. Even after the church started, they still went to the temple. And so the Christian faith is intrinsically tied with the faith of the Old Testament, right? It's a continuation. And so when you're witnessing to the Jews, where does Christianity start? He doesn't start with Jesus, really, though he's, I mean, that's the goal, right? And then interestingly enough, he doesn't start with like Adam and Eve, particularly. He starts with who? He's talking to the Jews, so he starts with Abraham, the beginning of the Jewish people, Genesis chapter 12. So he says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he's like, look, we're connecting together, right? We all agree on this Abraham, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob guy, right? The God of our fathers, our fathers. Then he starts connecting to Jesus. He says, glorified his servant, Jesus. Now, this idea of Jesus being a servant, we read about him being a servant in Isaiah 53. The idea that this figure, this Messiah that will come will be a servant. He glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. So he says, you people, maybe not every single one, but you all, you delivered him over and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. The people would have rather seen Barabbas, who everybody knew was a murderer. Now, this reference to the righteous one also harkens back to Isaiah 53, verse 11. And so as he hearkens back and references these Old Testament prophecies, he's really digging into them. You'd say, your whole life you've been expecting this Messiah, you've been expecting the righteous one, you've been reading about him in your Old Testament, you've been seeing how you cannot wait, you cannot wait, you cannot wait. Your whole religion is sort of looking forward to this in the Jewish time, and then he says, and you wanted to free a murderer instead. So... When you think about the gospel, and though this won't be our main emphasis this morning, you may have heard the, the idea that before you get someone saved, you've got to get them lost. I don't know if you've ever heard that idea, right? Who needs a Savior when you don't need saving from anything? Who needs a fireman when there's no fire? There's no hell. Who needs a Savior? 
So he starts this explanation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He had a servant. His servant was named Jesus. He was the righteous one, which connects him to the Messiah of the Old Testament. And you guys killed him. Verse 15, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead to this. We're all witnesses. So he gives four charges here. The Jews of Jerusalem handed Jesus over to be killed. They disavowed him before Pilate. They asked for a murderer instead of the author of life. And they even caused the death of the author of life. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Notice how this reads funny. You notice how this reads kind of funny? And his name, by faith in his name, why does it read so smoothly? If you had a different translation, they might read that smoother. They might smooth that out so it's like a little easier to read. The reason it kind of reads funny like this is because in the Greek, they really put the name aspect towards the beginning in order to emphasize it. So the English translators tried to demonstrate this emphasis. And his name. By faith in his name. Putting the name twice. Putting name at the beginning of the sentence to show how important it is. And in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see now. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health and the presence of you all. So, who deserves the credit? It's not, it's not us. We, we didn't do anything. We, they, they say. We, we have no piety. We have no power. But the God of Abraham had the servant named Jesus... It's by his name, by faith in his name. Now, what about this question? Whose faith in Jesus' name? Whose faith? When the man that wanted to be healed reached out his hand, was he reaching out his hand for the followers of Christ to heal him? I think, as I remember the story last week, he was reaching his hand out to someone he thought was going to give him money. So did the man who was healed have faith? Now, I think based on the response that we're going to see from this man, I, I think it's pretty clear that he did have faith afterwards. But prior, prior, when he was reaching out his hand for the money, was it his faith? that we're talking about here? Maybe, but I don't think so. I think it was the faith of those who had done the healing. Peter and John's faith initially, and the man's response. Now, maybe God knew the man would respond, and that was part of it. I, I don't know. This could get complicated. But it does seem here that the faith would have been with Peter and John. Verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. You didn't realize what you were doing. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled. Of course, once again, this could be a reference back to Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant of Christ. But let's think about this. Is it true that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers? Yes and no. No in this sense. Did they know they were killing him? Did they know they were letting a murderer out 
in order to kill Jesus? Yeah. Sure they did. Sure they knew what they were doing. Did they know they were killing their Messiah? No. No, they did not. They were blind to who Christ truly was. Was it because he never told them? No. He told them. So the fact that they didn't know wasn't because they didn't know they were doing something wrong or they didn't hear Jesus tell them who he was. They didn't believe, and because they believed, in that sense, they were ignorant. They didn't realize what they were doing because they did not believe. So then we go on to verse 19. And this is the part of the gospel I'd like to emphasize this morning. We'll talk more about the end, but it says, repent, therefore. So, so we have, we start with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then there's this Jesus. Jesus is the one, it is by his name the power comes that was able to heal this man. You guys killed him. And therefore what? Repent. And turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Now, I asked Rob to, to help me out here. Rob and I like to use this little book. If he'd come up here and, and help, me, help me do the magic. And I need a volunteer to help me with this book. I'm just going to pick some poor soul here in a second. Well, we like to pick on the reins all at once. So, Natalie, would you come up here? Natalie, I know you love your father, and he's the best, and you just cherish him beyond compare. And so I would like you to pick any page in this book, and then you show everybody that it's blank, and then I want you to write a sweet, loving note to your father. But don't make it too long. We, we can't, you know, we can't be here all day. So just some, yeah, yeah, you know, nice and big so we can all read it. Just something... Something to show how you love and appreciate him. Boy, this is going to be touching. We're going to have tears. Sweet and loving. Boy, you know, you're going to be a poet. I can't believe you put up with me. Just, you know, I, I write those same kind of things to Bethany when I'm trying to really be sweet to her. And, you know, you notice that Natalie wrote this with a pen, right? I mean, it's, it's a pen. And it's, it's on here. But, like, what's so cool about this particular little book is I can give this book to Rob. And then Rob can realize that Natalie's been bad and that she's full of it when she wrote this uh, note right here. And then, guess what? It's all gone. And when it says your sins were blotted out back then, all of their paper was more like this. It, the ink didn't sink in. And you could actually take a wet cloth like Rob just did and just wipe it right off. And so when it says, repent and your sins will be blotted out, this is likely what the people were thinking of. Your sins all written down. You know them all. You can always turn to that page. And guess what? I flip this page. I close this book. You're never going to have any idea where those were ever, are ever again. 
And this is how our sins are. While one day full of sins, after Jesus Christ comes into our life, after we've repented of our sins, they are wiped away. And that is what the people would have understood when they heard that if they repented, that their sins would be blotted out. Now notice that this verse doesn't say things about uh, having faith or belief or trust or good news or some of the many things we might associate the gospel. What is the emphasis in this particular verse? Repentance, right? This turning away, which of course has to do with having faith. It has to do with trusting. You're not going to repent if you don't have faith. So they all kind of work together. I'm not saying they're like completely independent of each other or anything. But sometimes we want to do this. I believe in Jesus. I believe. I believe, I believe, I believe. That's it. I don't do anything else. We're done there. So great. Have you ever heard heard of the uh, fire insurance salvation, right? I believe. I believe because I don't want to go to hell. Well, by golly, don't make me do anything. This is my favorite illustration. I've probably used it before. Let's just say you're a Green Bay Packers fan. I don't know why I chose that team. <laughs> Let's just say you're a Green Bay Packers fan. You know, you really think they're the best. You just, you know, you have faith in Aaron Rodgers that he's going to finally come through again this year. Unlike last year and the year before that. And anyway, anyway, anyway. Let's not digress, okay? You've got faith that Aaron Rodgers is going to do it. The Green Bay Packers are on their way. What are you going to do because you have that faith? You're going to, like, watch the team. You're going to, like, buy the paraphernalia. You're going to tell the pastor he needs to shorten up his sermon because the game starts at noon. (laughs) You're going to change your actions because you care. You, You believe in the Green Bay Packers. So you know what? Sometimes we want to say this. I have faith in Jesus, but don't. I don't want to change my actions. Can't I just have faith? Can I just have belief? Can I just have trust but not change anything? And it seems to me when when Peter here is talking, he's given the sermon, he says, you need to repent. And repent means this idea of turning away, changing direction. So if you say, I want to be saved, but I would like to not change my direction in any way, I'm having a hard time. You're really having a whole lot of faith. Because I think when you really have faith, when you really put that trust in something, it changes you. It changes your direction. And we can see here, Peter says, repent. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord when we repent, when we've saved, there's a time of refreshing that comes in our life. That, may he, that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the resta- time of restoring all things about God which spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Now, we could kind of go into a lot of detail on when we think maybe this Jesus coming back it would depend on your kind of end time stuff. But I'm just going to sort of make it simple this morning. I won't go into it, but we'll say that we know one day Jesus is going to come back, but prior to that time, and even though 
we live in an imperfect world and there's things that are bad and we have, still have problems and we still make mistakes and, and no matter when we're Christians, we still sometimes do things we know we shouldn't have done, we regret so on and so forth, we still can have that time of refreshing. We still can have that time of peace with God until we wait and, until Jesus comes back again. Then it says in verse 22, And Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me, for your brothers you shall listen to him, whatever he tells you. Now this quote that he begins here from Moses, it goes on to verse 23, it comes from Deuteronomy 18, 15. Now this is another one of those, I was trying not to make this too long, this is another one of those examples where the way they use the Old Testament seems odd. Because this quote in Deuteronomy 18, 15 really is talking about probably Joshua or other leaders. So this prophet like me from your brothers is actually probably talking about Joshua or others in the original context. So it's like, how come he applies it to Christ? How come he applies it to Christ? You know, isn't this, I just feel like if I went in the Old Testament and just read some random verse about somebody and I'm like, oh, this has to do with someone in the New Testament, you might be like, no, it doesn't. It just said it's about Joshua. So why, why does it seem to be able to do this? This is my argument for why he does this. There had already started to become a uh, tradition within Judaism, and by the first century, they already viewed this passage as typological. They already were saying to each other, one day, the Messiah, and they would talk about the Messiah, and they would say, it's going to be like the prophet, like Moses talked about, even though he's talking about Joshua. So they already sort of used this Moses passage to sort of use it as a type of Christ. And so therefore, when Peter referenced it, they all knew what he was talking about, and it wouldn't have been confusing to them because they were already kind of doing it that way. There was already this expectation of a Moses-like figure in the end. It was a common thing. So the quote goes on, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now, this is kind of a combination from Deuteronomy 18:19. And the destruction part at the end actually is a combination of, is combined with Leviticus 23, verse 29. And so he sort of splices two verses together. And you say this seems really weird, but if you think about it, when he's giving this speech, does he have his notes with him? No. So I try to speak without as many notes as possible, but as you notice, even I, as many as I'd like to not have, I can't memorize everything, or at least I don't take the time to memorize absolutely everything, so I, 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 I use some notes. So if I were just to quote to you scriptures off the top of my head, and I were to put some together, you can imagine that I'm not like reading from my notes and getting them exactly right. So sort of this putting them together thing kind of makes sense. And the reason he does, and he puts it into this Leviticus, he says, and every soul who does not listen, who was the ones that didn't listen? The people that crucified Christ. To the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. He says, you did not listen to Jesus Christ. You will be destroyed. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. He then references Samuel. And Samuel doesn't ever have a specific prophecy about Christ. But the book that bears his name does talk a lot about the Davidic dynasty. Then we go on to verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, 
Once again, the Abrahamic covenant, we just can't get away from it. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He references the Abrahamic covenant, which is probably quoting closer to Genesis 22:18 than Genesis 12, 1 through 3, because the Abrahamic covenant is quoted a couple different places. It's repeated. He once again, he brings them to Christ. He has their culpability. He says what they've done. He says, you need to repent. And then he brings it all the way back to Abraham again. Verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Christ came, he died, these people he's talking to are the ones that did it. And what does Peter call them to do? Turn away from your wickedness. So when you say there's many layers of the gospel, there's many depths to the gospel, I would say, don't forget that one of the parts of the gospel which we learn more about is it's not just some intellectual assent that there's a Jesus that he's the son of God, and somehow that doesn't affect my life. Because if you really believe that Jesus, he really believes he's the son of God, guess what you're going to do? You're going to turn from your wickedness. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. I'm not saying you're going to do it all right all the time. But sometimes I think when we, maybe it's when we're a kid and we have an altar call and we walk forward and we, we bend our knee. All we're looking for is fire insurance. All we're, all we're looking for is the get-out-of-hell-free card. Don't touch my life. Don't touch my life. I just don't want to go to hell. And I think the gospel says, no, if you really believe and follow Christ, that is going to change the direction of your life, and you are going to want to move away from wickedness. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just pray this morning that as we, if there's anyone that, hasn't made the decision to put their faith and trust in Christ, or, or maybe they, they thought about it, but they realized, you know, they've never repented. It, it was just fire insurance, and they've never really turned and decided that it was time to live the right kind of life and that their belief would actually change their behavior. Lord, I pray that would be the day. For those of us who've made that decision, Lord, I just pray that we would keep that at the top of our minds. You know, it's easy to let our sin natures come and get us to push away the truths that we know and have us act in a way that we know we shouldn't. But we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.